boy's got utter belief in him. And somehow she's found the acceleration. This is Robert Johnson welcoming you to the world's greatest track and field podcast, Let's Run.com's Track Talk. On this week's show, we'll talk about the Newberry Boys going 1-2-3 at the Running Lane Nationals. As all three broke 14-10, but was the course short? Lawrence Toronto has won yet another marathon. Fair or foul, USATF says there will be no 10,000 at USA's this year. The new Olympic marathon trial standards are out at 218 and 237. Is that fair or sexist against the women? The USATF convention has been held. Has Max Siegel been suspended? Kira D'Amato and Connor Mance have rocked the USA Half Marathon Championships. And is Sarah Vaughn the next Sarah Hall? All of that and more on this show. But before we get started, Remember, unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, we want to hear from you. Pick up the phone, 844-LET'S-RUN, 844-538-7786, or email the show, pod at letsrun.com. I'm joined, as always, by my genetic equal, but faster brother, Weldon Johnson, as well as ace staff writer, Jonathan Colton. Wow, that might have been the best intro I've ever done, guys. What would you guys think of it? I enjoyed it. I think you did well. One thing I wanted to mention, if you enjoy our podcast, rate and review on whatever app you use to listen to, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all that stuff. Spread the word. We're always trying to grow our listener base. But yeah, Robert, I I was pretty impressed. If this is someone's first time listening, I think they'll think this is a professional operation we got going here. No, no, John. You got to play up the credentials of the people on the podcast. So he's referred to me as two-time national team member Weldon Johnson, our 10,000 meter expert, Weldon Johnson. I was thinking about that because like no analyst, you can't get an analyst job these days unless you like played in the NFL. So I don't even know why you guys are allowed to comment on this podcast. Just like running in college. I guess they have ex-college football players who are kind of analysts, but that's usually sort of like B-team analysts. So I have the potential to be like an A-team analyst. You guys will be stuck doing this podcast. And also, John, he didn't mention joining the supporters club. If you really like this podcast, you can get a second podcast every week on Friday where we preview the weekend action. It's called The Friday 15. Go to letsrun.com slash subscribe. And hey, we got to pay the bills too, John. We have two great offers. The runnerbox.com. It's a box of hand-selected goodies sent to your door every two months. It's worth over $50 at least. And it can cost as little as 28 bucks. It's the perfect gift for someone, or it's great for yourself. I opened last week's box on the air. It's tremendous stuff in there. Go to the link in the show notes. If you use code Let's Run 21 you can save 10 bucks. And also, you got to take care of yourself. Stay healthy this holiday season. A lot of drinking. I'm, I'm sure it'll be going on. Unhealthy eating. You got to get your electrolytes. Drink LMNT. Drink Element. It's electrolytes without the junk. No extra sugar. You don't need the sugar in your electrolytes. Come on, people. Try it out. Free sample pack. DrinkLMNT.com slash Let's Run. You pay $5 shipping. If you don't like this stuff, I will refund your 5 bucks. No one has taken me up on that offer, ever. And I gave a free Let's Run listener a box of like hundreds of element last week. He said he took advantage of the offer, and I said, first one to email me, new person would get the box. So it's been shipped to Oregon. All right, well then, let's talk about some running stuff here. 
Robert, now, Robert, the one flaw you did make in your introduction, you referred to them as the Newbury Boys. They're actually the Newbury Park Boys, Newbury Park High School in California. And Rodness said I'm not qualified to talk about this. I just want to ask you guys, what was your best placing at Foot Locker Regionals in high school? Because I finished 20th at Foot Locker Northeast as a senior in high school. I'm willing to bet that's better than either of you guys did, which means I'm probably the only one qualified to discuss the running lane nationals this weekend. Fair point, John. I think, do they even have this in Northeast? I think there's like a B team race. My high school teammate was really good. and We thought he could make it. So he went out and ran the A team race. And I'm pretty sure I was in like a, the B race and finishing in like 58th place. So that was my footlocker high school cross country. Claim to fame. It might have been even called Kenny back then, John. That's how old I am. I'm not sure. Okay, let's talk about this running lane championship. If you're an international viewer, you may not know what this is. This is the normally in America they have the high school team nationals, the Nike Cross Nationals. Nike, for some reason this year, made a cowardly decision of holding all of the regional meets, but no national meet. If someone can explain the logic, well, I know the logic. They didn't want to fly the people to their own campus and get sued, but what a joke. Anyways, thankfully, the people in Alabama, Huntsville, Alabama, picked up and Garmin sponsored the Garmin Running Lane Cross Country Championships were held. This ended up being sort of the team nationals and individual nationals. We're still going to have the East Bay Championships, which is the Foot Locker Championships this weekend, but... You know, we'd already anointed the Newberry Park boys as the greatest men's boys cross-country team ever. They did not disappoint. Totally dominated the competition by going 1-2-3 overall. Colin Solomon, 14-0-3. Lex, Leo and Lex Young, 14-0-5. 29 points for the Newberry Park XC Club. Second place was 121. So very impressive stuff there. Those winning times up front were under 14.10, which Jonathan Galt had anointed as the fastest 5K cross-country time in U.S. history. I didn't anoint this. That's a fact. It was. Yeah, the big picture here besides this team, which we already pretty much, everyone pretty much, there's not even much debate. People agree this is the best high school team, which is rare when you have these sort of discussions. But the sort of big thing to come out of this meet was what, Four people, John? Five? The top four. Four people were under 1410, which is regarded as the fastest time ever by high schooler on a 5K quote-unquote certified course. Run back by the legendary Dathan Ritzenhain, who got a bronze medal at the World Junior Cross-Country Championships. He's the best U.S. male junior cross-country runner ever. And now it's meet in Alabama in one year, four guys break that time. So we'd already given the accolades and the praise that Newbury Park deserves. But then real quickly, they're like, wait, is this course short? I think that's where we're going with this, right? Because I've, I've learned more in the last three days about certifying and measuring cross-country courses than I ever thought I would. Yeah, we've spent this week digging into this stuff. And I just want to say Rojo was right. I shouldn't have brought up the time. The more we, I look at it, I've talked, to, I've talked to people about how you measure these courses. There's steel tape measuring. There's wheel measuring. There's GPS signal data measuring. And it's just tough to measure a cross-country. A track, it's very easy to measure a track. It's difficult to measure a cross-country course because 
it's either time intensive or you're skipping over when you're measuring on grass or on uneven surfaces, the wheel, it doesn't always stay right on the ground like it might with the track or road thing. So it's really, and obviously that's even before you get into the different conditions and the hills and everything. I shouldn't have brought up this national record thing. It's just impossible to compare cross country times accurately track. We all the tracks are the same cross country courses are not the same. This was a sensational performance, but there's a reason why no one talked about the high school cross country national record until this year. I disagree, John, you should have brought it up. I mean, people, they're going to still talk about it. If somebody runs faster than the fastest time ever. And the fact you brought it up is going to reiterate for the, refresh in everyone's minds why time isn't as important across country it's very hard to measure these courses long story short let's run visitor well i guess i can say his name he's fine with that dr neil Baumgartner. he coaches the team out of san antonio texas the san antonio homeschooled spartans they ran at the meet and this guy's like super methodical scientific He's the chief of the U.S. Air Force Exercise Unit at the Joint Base in San Antonio. He's got a PhD. He wheeled the course before the race, and he's like, look, it's 65 meters short. He's like, I took the shortest route. That's how you're supposed to do it. We kind of get back in touch with the meet people. They're like, look, the course, we measured the shortest way. It's legit. And then you get into all this stuff. If you're actually using a wheel, there can be slippage on grass. You put a, an adjustment, there can be an adjustment factor. The really accurate way is to measure with a seal tape along the whole course, and then it's still there still could be some errors. Long story short, I think even if you adjusted, maybe it's 30 meters short, but I, just, I don't even know if that means anything. Like Ritz's course was probably, no one even had that debate with this court, that course. I just think it shows why on the track, times matter in cross country. Not as much so. Yeah, it's interesting. I found this article that was written several years ago. I think it was on Milesplit or somewhere where a guy had a steel tape 750 meters long and then he wheeled it on a grass course. And depending on whether the grass was short or long, you got like 745 meters, 743 meters. So you have to multiply everything by like 1.007 or something. So, but if you multiply, if it is 65 meters short, you multiply that by that, it's still about 30 meters short, which would be interesting. But one theory would be, this course could be accurate, but then every other course may actually be long. But I think that this course probably is shorter than most courses that are, you know, certified as 5,000 meters. Although, you know, what does certified mean? There really is no certification. As Race Results Weekly wrote in this week's edition, Race Results Weekly does not recognize cross-country records in the way we do for road running. And as someone said on our weekly conference call on Monday, quick guys, what is the national collegiate record for cross-country? Nobody knows. It doesn't exist because the course links vary so much. I'm willing, though, to get on a plane. I would love to go down there. And once David Katz, a course guy, tells us what to do, hey, do it live on the internet, maybe just for the VAP subscribers or something. I don't know. but That would be cool. Like, let's just try to figure this out. One thing that's interesting about this, Welton, is on the conference call on Monday, our weekly all-staff conference call, someone said, I think it has to be short because 73 people broke 15 minutes. That doesn't actually shock me. And I did some research yesterday on this because if you're running, if you're running 15 minutes, that means you're, and you're the 73rd guy, you're within 16 seconds of mile of the winner, 
Well, let's say Solomon is an 840 guy. If you're within 16 seconds a mile of that, that means you're a 912 guy, which is not shocking at all. I mean, I I, I, I did the math. I, I counted up from 2019. I think there was 180 kids that ran 912 or faster. So 70 people doing it in one race does not shock me. I would say Colin Solomon is closer to an 830 guy, honestly, because he ran 843 last spring as a junior. But I do kind of get your argument there, Robert. And I'll admit, I, I was the person. I saw 73 people, sub 15. I'm like, this course is a joke. It has to be short. But the more I look into it, well, I think it's just hard to have a, get a definitive measurement on a cross-country course, but I'm more willing to believe it's it's accurate. And the one interesting thing of putting this performance into context, so Colin Solomon wins the race, 14.03. I mean, it's a tremendous performance no matter what. We like to use the Tully Runners speed rings to compare performances, and this was the fastest speed rating of the entire year. Uh, it was 202 points, according to... Bill Malin, who puts these speed ratings together, which compares performances across courses and conditions. Just for context, the highest rating he's ever given out is 214. That was Dathan Ritzenhain back in 2000 at Foot Lockers. So, you know, is this one of the all-time greatest runs we've ever seen? It's, I mean, partially it's kind of hard to say until we get more data on this course. People have only been racing on this 5K course at Nationals no, for two no, years. No, no, Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, I can jump in and just give a definitive no. There was three guys right behind him, two on the right. same team right behind him. Right. The most dominant run, you're crushing the field. I don't think the who, whoever the fourth place guy is, uh, I'm sure he's a good runner, but... He was, what, four seconds back? Three seconds back? Uh, no. Let's go back to Ritzenheim, folks. What did he do that year at Foot Locker Nationals? He destroyed two men by the name of Alan Webb, who ran a 353 mile that year, and Ryan Hall. Beat him by 20 seconds. Yeah, okay. They're not on Ritz's level because he was the greatest high school cross-country runner this country's ever produced. But at the same time, I mean, I feel like half of this has been, oh, the course might be short. Oh, they're not as good as Ritz. Like, this was a ridiculous performance. This is one all-time legendary team performance. Going one, two, three, and essentially what NXN. I mean, all the top teams knew all season Newbury Park was going to be there. Most of the top teams did show up. They threw 29 points on the rest of the field, which I'm a little confused by because when the race was over on Saturday, it was 28. And now we're recording this on Wednesday, and that's up to 29. I don't know if there was someone wasn't clearly someone must have not been counted, but to go one, two, three on the entire country is just ridiculous. And I really would like to see would like to see what these guys could have done had they run the East Bay Nationals because there are a couple guys who didn't run the running lane champs who will be running this weekend. But also, like, what if one of the guys who's doubling comes back and wins the East Bay Nationals or gets second? And then you'd say, oh, but they also finish behind three guys from the same school. I, I, it's going to be interesting to see how the guys who are sort of doubling do, but just an all-time incredible performance. And they went, they got sixth place as well. Aaron Solomon, who's Colin's younger brother, he was sixth. So they weren't just one, two, three. They were one, two, three, six. They had four of the top six guys in the entire country in this race. Robert mentioned David Katz. He's like the Olympic, or he has been the Olympic marathon measurer. He's one of the top course measures in the world. David has just sent me an email saying he's read all 16 pages of the thread on whether the course is short, and he'll respond by tonight with an email. 
And I guess I'm going to guess what David's going to say. One, he's going to say, look, courses aren't certified for a reason for cross country, right? He's got to say that because that's the fact, right? Who knows what else he'll chime in with. So look for that to come. Well, Newberry Park was absolutely amazing. No doubt about that. But small but here. Those four guys that are all in the top six in the country at this race, they're from two families. So we've seen identical I am an identical twin. We've seen identical twins dominate the top of the high school scene before with Ed and Jorge Torres, with Brent and Brad Hauser. So the fact that they have two up there is not that shocking. And then they have two brothers that are similar. You know, it's kind of like the Ingebrigtsen's, like everybody in the family's good. So some have pointed that out. I agree. And there was an interesting thread, you know, again. Newberry Park, is it the coach or the kids is the name of this thread. And they've been having various themes of this for weeks now. But I thought this person made a very good point. Poster Mr. Chow, posting from L.A., saying that, look, let me say this before I get to this post. There's no doubt Sean Bryson's a great coach, and he's really into it and spends a lot of time with these guys. I mean, they're getting college-level coaching, certainly on this team. They're doing altitude tents, camps, etc. But this person points out, Look at the Newberry Park freshman class this year. This is the top five for their freshmen. 16, 21, 17, 38, 19, flat, 21, 41, 22, 47. Look at it from, from, from 2019. 14, 37, 14, 58, 15, 24, 15, 35, 15, 48. So you're probably averaging three minutes a man, man slower, at least two. So it's a good point in the sense of if it was all the coaching, the freshman class would be just as good as it was two years ago. Of course, it's not all the coaching. He got once-in-a-lifetime genetics on his high school team. And, you know, we talked about the 29 points. By the way, that's two more points than the Fayetteville Manlius girls scored in 2010, which is the all-time record at NXN for any male boys or girls team. And to me, the most amazing run ever in the high school level is Bill Arias is success at Fayetteville Manuals. I mean, those girls teams were winning nationals every year in a row, like eight years in a row or something. How many? I mean, I don't have the stats, John, but it, it was incredible because it, you couldn't just rely on one family or three or four people. They were doing it year after year after year. It was clearly the culture and the coaching doing it for not just a three or four year period when you have, you know, one set of, of talented group kids doing it for like a decade. is It was ridiculous. Rob, I'm not sure what your freshman, if your freshman point really adds anything. I mean, f- first of all, I would say that freshman times are more indicative of true talent level, but then sort of saying, oh, he couldn't coach these freshmen to run fast as freshmen. I think coaching has a bigger impact by junior or senior year when you've had a few years in the system. But hey, yes, look, these kids are incredibly ta- talented, but also he's a good coach. I feel like it, this is kind of a Brady-Belichick debate. People are like, oh, was it Brady or Belichick responsible for the success of the Patriots? It's both. I think that's the case here with Newbury Park. John, but that makes it really boring sports radio when you say that. And speaking of Brady and Belichick, I'm pretty sure I might have been able to go there sort of jokingly that people were calling for Belichick's head maybe when the Patriots were 1-3 and three this year. Were you guys 1-3? and three? I'm trying to remember. Were we? You were 2-4. and four. I know we were 2-4. and four. We were weren't one and three. We dropped to one and three after losing to the Bucks in week four. We've been on a tear since. Okay, enough high school cross country talk. But before we move on, 
Can we give a shout out to Natalie Cook? She dominated the girls' race from Fireman, Texas. She won by 19 seconds and 1603.9, getting a 165 total rating. She'll be running for Dave Smith at Oklahoma State next year. Both of her parents, Olympic Trials qualifier, Melissa Gully was her maiden name, and Andrew Cook, Olympic Trials qualifier for Andrew at 219, and Melissa was three times on the track. She ran 414, 1534, and 3231. So, congrats to her. And well, speaking of high school cross country, I'll push this to the Friday 15. Chris Lear, author of The Running with the Buffaloes, called us on Monday. It happened to be during our conference call. We piped him in. He was, we found out, the fastest miler in New Jersey in the 1990s. Is that what he said, John? Yeah, anyone who read Running with the Buffaloes cover to cover like I did multiple times would know that because it's listed on his bio, author bio thing on the sleeve. Clearly, you guys haven't read the book enough. You know... Probably read a preprint, John. It wasn't there, you know. But, and we turned into this great conversation. He's like, "Oh, if I had a great kid, I, I would. If I had the means, I would. I would move out to Newberry Park and let him be coached by Sean Brosnan." And then Robert's like, "Why? If your kid's really talented, like, let him have the great races. You don't need to move him." And then Chris is like, "Chris had this great line: We should treat the sport like field hockey." And I'm like, what? He's like, pretend there's no professional running. It's like, it's not an option for a lot of people. Some people will do it. They're making like $20,000 a year. Why not just be really good when you can? And that means younger and assume there's not going to be a professional career and go for it when you're young. So we'll play some of that audio on the Friday 15. Okay, let's go now to maybe the biggest race of the weekend from a worldwide perspective, the Valencia Marathon. And there was a familiar champion on the men's side. He hadn't won in Valencia before, but he's won pretty much everywhere else. That's Lawrence Chirono. If you look at his victories, Robert outlined it nicely in the week that was. But the last five or six years, he's essentially just had course records, personal bests, major marathon wins all over the place. Prague, Honolulu twice, Amsterdam twice, Chicago, Boston. He was fourth in the Olympics in August, and then he bounces back and he wins Valencia in 205.12. Times were a little bit slow because of the wind. You know, 205.12, not not bad for an American, but for a guy who's run 203.04 there last year, a little on the slow side. And Chirono, as usual, this came down to a kick. And I'd say he's now, what, three or four in kicks in terms of the big races because he won Boston, Chicago in kicks in 2019. He won Valencia in a kick, but he was outkicked for the silver and bronze medal in Sapporo earlier this year. So that's a good win for him. Gets back on track, 205-12. And the other guy in this men's race that we were tracking was Jeffrey Camaror. And what's interesting about this is Camaror gets fourth and he finishes in 205-23, which is a personal best for him. And you would think looking at those results, oh, he was only 11 seconds back. He probably got dropped in the final miles, but that didn't happen, did it, Robert? Now, can I give a thumbs down to, to, to Mr. Camor? I mean, I, I love him. I love how he did World Cross. I'm a huge fan of World Cross, the world half. But there were some articles that the week of the race, how he's gonna, how he thinks he can break two in the marathon. Then the gun goes off in this race. He doesn't even go with the lead pack. And I outlined it in the week that was because I'm going to have to make a, an admission here. 
I didn't actually get up at 3 a.m. in America to watch this race live, but f- goes out in 1451. He's seven seconds back. 10K is only four seconds back, but by halfway, he's 43 seconds down. 25K is 58 seconds down. You know, he went through halfway in 6302 when the leaders went out in 6219. But then all of a sudden, he just starts running 29 minute low pace. And at 40K, he's only two seconds back, almost catches the group. But then he sticks, basically runs that exact same pace all the way home, doesn't slow down, runs a negative split, a very weird way to run this race. 63 flat because it was windy in the second half. He runs 63.02, but can't catch the guys. They kick away from him, and, and he loses by 21 seconds. So I don't know, John. Do you think he's – why did he go with – I mean, I, I guess you can't complain about a negative split, but why, why did he go with the leaders at the start? I don't understand. Especially – now, again, I didn't watch the race, so maybe I'm speculating here, but – if you're seven seconds off the leaders at 5K, is he running? Is there a second pack he's running with? Like, wouldn't you think on a windy day, your best bet is to go with the leaders and tuck in? It doesn't make a lot, whole lot of sense to me, especially since he wasn't, you know, he wasn't that far back for the whole first part of the race. But it is a PR. He finally breaks his PR. His PR is dated to his first marathon ever, right? Yeah, 2012 Berlin. He ran 206.12. And. We know he's capable of going faster. He's certainly going capable of going faster than 205, but it's, you know, he, he did get a personal best in the marathon for the first time in nine years. But maybe he's a guy that's just better suited for, like, you know, these New Yorks. I mean, maybe he's a better version of Meb or something like that. You know, I would love to see Toronto come to, to Boston. He said he's not going to be doing World Cross anymore or stuff like that. So can we get him in Boston in the spring, see what he can do on the hills there? What, so, you mean Camaro? Toronto is yeah. going to be run. Boston. That's a good point, Robert, but I would push back. He's a guy who's run 5801 in the half marathon. So if you really think like, oh, he's a Meb type and he's kind of a grinder, he's also really shown he can light it up in a half marathon. And I would think that kind of guy could run, you know, 202 in a full. Or maybe he's just better at the half marathon. Maybe that's his sweet spot. And he's winning these other majors because maybe New York doesn't quite have the same field as the London or something like that. So we think he's relatively better on the hills. Oh, so he's a hybrid between Meb and Zosine Tedesse. Correct. But, John, you said Toronto. You know, it was interesting when he won Boston and Chicago in 2019. And by the way, Toronto, a little trivia fact here, Toronto and... Cam Warwer were the reigning champions of Boston, Chicago, and New York. The defending champs did not go back this year because they were all in this race. But when Toronto won Boston and Chicago in 2019, you know, both in sprint finishes, I think we asked him, like, hey, were you ex- expecting to win this race in a sprint finish after Chicago? He's like, no, I don't think I have a good kick. You said you think he's two out of three in the kick. I kind of think it's actually two out of four, John, because he last he lost Valencia last year in a kick. Then he's there's three guys kicking for the medals in the Olympics. He ends up fourth, but he's, but he, well, actually he's won three out of five. I would say Chicago, Boston, and now this one, and he's lost those two, and maybe there's more before that. But who knows? He's a he's an incredible runner, very consistent in the marathon. If it wasn't for Kipchoge, we would view him as like, wow, look at that, you know, in, impressive stuff. And in the women's race here, I just want to point out Nancy Jella got one. Her PR was two thirty three coming in. She runs two nineteen. And I don't know. I've been burned too many times in the past. 
I just find this that I know Sarah Hall has improved a lot at older age, and I know Sarah Vaughn's now coming to the marathon. We'll talk about that in a minute. There's some been some people that have improved massively after they have babies or whatnot in their 30s, but this is a woman who, at the age of 30, had a half marathon PB of 72.42 and a marathon PB of 233.56, and now she runs 219. That being said, I don't know what drug would make you lower your PB by 14 minutes either. So. Just pointing it out there, though, because I've been burned by the likes of Jemima Sungong and some of these people sort of who had these 230, 229 type PBs and all of a sudden were one of the best in the world. I mean, Robert, you, you're not wrong to, to bring that up. And again, yeah, people are going to say, oh, well, we don't think Sarah, you know, we don't criticize Sarah Hall's progression. Now we're criticizing a Kenyan. But this is a woman who had run nine marathons before this year. And her personal best was 233. She's 33 years old. Now, she started improving, I would say, if you look at her progression 2019, she had never broken 70 in the half. Then she gets down to 62, sorry, 68, 24. She's winning a bunch of half marathons. 2020, she doesn't really do much. DNS London, maybe she was pacing there. And then earlier this year, you know, she really improves to 65, 21. She's runner up in the Berlin half. And then, you know, if you run 65, 21, that's not a shock to be running 219. but how she got to this point. Yeah. You look, I don't know anything about her training situation, about her agent. So, you know, I don't want to, I just want to point out, this is not a traditional uh, improvement model to suddenly run a 14 minute marathon PR at the age of 33. The 14 minutes sounds a bit misleading, John, because she'd run what you said, 68 and a half before this year. Well, 68. Yeah. in 20, 19 and then 65 this year but point noted you don't know her agent john or you do i don't world athletics doesn't list her agent on the on their website so i'm not sure who it is okay because i'm sick of googling female marathon agents and seeing a particular group pop up when they have suspicious performances I know you what you're hinting at here. If I agent Federico Rosa, I yes, I'm going to be. Oh, I, oh. I'm going to be more specific, more suspicious. Uh, John. Well, look, Federico Rosa was Jemima Samgong's agent. It was Rita Jepku's agent. Those are the two highest profile marathon women's marathon cheats in history. So, when they had the same agent, you, not we're not implying anything. We're just pointing out facts. John, usually I sort of cut out when we overtalk. I think I'll leave that in. So plausible deniability. You didn't say what you said. Just kidding, people. Well, my final takeaway from Valencia is we need to have Lawrence Chirono in every major marathon because clearly all he does is get into sprint finishes. I think that's exciting for the sport. So can we throw, I guess when he raced Kipchoge, it wasn't a sprint finish in the Olympics, but I want to see this guy racing as much as possible. And his agent also is Federico Rosa, but... That's neither here nor there. Well, John, you, you touched on what I wanted to say. You said we need him in every major marathon. Do you consider Valencia a major marathon? One thing we didn't do this year is make the chart with how many sub-205 guys they have, how many sub-207s. But last year, Valencia, I mean, the COVID really limited things, was either the number one or number two marathon. I guess the number two marathon in the world. But a lot of money is put in this race. The reigning Boston and New York champions skipped defending their titles to come run this race. Should we treat Valencia just as we treat the World Marathon Majors? It's a beautiful city. It seems like a destination. I'm thinking if I'm flying to go run a marathon, I think I might pick Valencia. 
But yeah, I think we should treat it as a major. I mean, look at the results. 13 guys broke 207. What other majors did that happen in this year? I mean, the, they got some big-time stars with Toronto and with Jeffrey Camworo. And maybe, you know, we criticized some of the majors earlier this year for having shallow fields. Now, their women's field, they didn't really have anyone I'd heard of before this race. So maybe we should, you know, if we'd gone in and compared them to all the majors and said, well, maybe their women's field wasn't anything special, but they did have, you know, they had one woman break, they had one woman run 219, they had the runner up at Tegegne Waldu run 220, and then third place was 223. But yeah, I, I view it as a major. I view it as on par with 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 the other majors. So I, I put it in that category for sure. I should just say I'm going to go next year. Put it on the calendar. Plan a vacation with the wife. Okay, guys and gals, since we've been talking about the marathon, there was some big marathon news in the U.S. last week. As at the USATF convention, the 2024 U.S. Olympic marathon trials standards have come out and they are faster for both the men and the women. The men's time has been reduced from 219 to 218 while the women's time has been reduced from 245 to 237. What do you guys think of these standards? Jonathan and I have run the numbers assuming people run the same times that they did in the last qualifying window. The number of men's qualifiers will drop from 260 to 169, whereas the women's qualifiers will drop from 513 down to 91. Is the reduction too big? Has USATF now gone from being sexist against men to sexist against women? What do you guys think? That that last point, Robert, is my biggest takeaway, is that in the last cycle... Not through USATF's fault, because they were setting the standards as response to the Olympic standards prior to 2020. The women's standard of 245 was way easier than the men's standard of 219. And I think everyone expected the women's standard would come down for this cycle. But now I do think they've overcorrected, because 237 for a woman is tougher than 218 for a man. So that's the one... I don't mind that the standards have been reduced. I'm not... I used to be anti having a big trials and then I was pro big trials. And now I sort of fall somewhere in the middle, but the biggest thing I want to see is fairness between the genders. And I don't think that's been achieved here. I think it's now easier to qualify as a man than as a woman. I would just like to see, you know, maybe you bump it up to two thirty nine or something for the women. Okay. I've got to take, what's the word? Take offense. I've got to take, I got to correct what you one thing you said there. You said the women's standard now is harder than the men's. And it depends on how you look at it. Because in terms of how far are these times off the world record, the women's standard is easier than the men's. The men's standard is 13.4% slower than the world record to a 139, whereas the women's standard of 237 is 17.1% off. So by that standard, you could argue that the men are still being discriminated against, even though there's way number numbers. Now, in terms of number of people that run those times, you know, certainly more people worldwide 218 than they do 237. Excuse me, than they do 237. 
I looked it up. In 2019, 555 people worldwide broke 200, broke 237 for in, in the women's marathon. And for the men, I couldn't even go that high. It was well over 1,000 because 909 men broke 217. We got to 1,000 men at 217.30. So it might have been 1,200, 1,300 men breaking 218. So probably twice as many people worldwide break that standard you know, on the men's side than they do on the women's side. And that's basically why you, the projected qualifiers are going to be twice as high on the men's side at 169 to 91 on the women's side. So those are the stats. But big picture-wise, I'm going to agree with you, John. They got this wrong. Let's just take a step back here. In the track, John, how many people qualify for the women's 1500 versus the men's 1500 steeple versus steeple it's always the same right they Correct. feel they, they they try to field the fields and have an equal number of people they should have set these standards so that you try to have an equal number of people just that's just the, the simplest way to do it and i've done a little research on that and i think that the standards should have been should be 218 for the men and 240 for the women. If you look at those standards, this is the Rojo theory. Change it now, USATF. Listen to Rojo. I've done the math. I don't know how they come up with these random numbers. I think they should be even numbers if at all possible anyways. So in 2019, roughly, I think 69 men broke 218 in the marathon and 67 women broke 240. That's what it should be. Yeah, that seems to make sense to me. Now, the 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 other issue here is there's been an ongoing argument ever since the Olympic trials in Atlanta, where we had 513 women qualify big trial or small trials. Like the small trials folks would say, look, the point of the Olympic marathon trials is to pick the Olympic team. Why do we have, you know, the riffraff back here who's running in the, in the two forties when they have zero chance to make the team. And then the small, the large trials crowd would say, this is supposed to be, a celebration of the sport. It promotes the sport. It gets more people interested in the trials. It gets more people flying down, supporting the host city financially, you know, draws more eyeballs to coverage. There are more articles and newspapers. I get the points on both sides. I personally, I, I kind of liked having the big trials crowd in 2020, but in order for that to be sustainable, you have to change the model uh, of how USATF hosts the trials and the local organizing committee because the Atlanta Track Club flew everyone down. They paid for hotels and flights for every athlete who competed. You can't keep doing that. It's just impossible if you're going to, even with the standards they currently have, it's too much money. No, 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 no. You can do it. Just, you, I don't think you should have to do it. I, I disagree with you. I am all for a big trials like you, John. It is a celebration of distance running. It's a big... You know, uh, one of my wife's friends, she, I mean, she ran in high school, but she's like, she saw me at a party. She's like, oh, you going to the trials in Atlanta? I said, what? How did you know about them? She's like, oh, my friend qualified. We're going to fly down there. We're going to get an Airbnb. So I think a big trials, I think 500 people is great. I think it's a great number, but I agree with you uh, to, to lower the cost. You could do it, but I don't think you should. I just think Atlanta Track Club didn't have to pay everybody's way. I think you only pay maybe the top 25 people's way or top 50, but it doesn't, it's not like the track having an extra 450 people in the back is not going to impact the race, get in the way, etc. 
and maybe you only have elite water bottles for the top 50 or something like that. Uh, you know, it keeps the cost down. But I, I think a larger trials makes sense. You're going to have more people wanting to host. If you have a thousand people, plus their families, plus their friends flying in, buying hotels, going to restaurants, etc. And then, you know, the top 10% that are most likely to make the team, you pay their way, etc. Yeah, I basically agree with that premise, Robert. I, I think the the very top athletes should have, you know, flights, hotels, whatever covered by, even it would be nice to have USATF pick up that bill, you know, put some of their money towards elite athletes as opposed to the local organizing committee who don't really have a lot of way to make that money. But uh, yeah, the, the same thing with the bottles on the course, because that was one of the big contentions is in Atlanta, all the athletes were supposed to be getting their bottles taken care of as well. And setting up elite fluid stations for 500 athletes is basically just a logistical nightmare. So if you can do that and you give the, the benefits to the very best athletes, but then you say, Hey, if you want to pay your way down and run this race, you can, and you know, you can finish 300th and have a great story to tell. Yeah. I don't, I don't mind that. I'm a little bit conflicted on this because when I got out of college, the Olympic marathon trials were, it's actually the A was 220 and the B was 222. And I'm like, I can do that. It kept me in the sport. And then I dreamed of making the Olympics. I won the Marine Corps Marathon in like two, it was really hot, 224 or 225. And they said, what's next? And I said, I want to make the Olympic team. And I swear to God, they're like little running journalist. Maybe this is why I became a running journalist. They laughed. One guy like, like, what? Now, obviously I didn't make the Olympics, but I got fourth in the country twice. But the argument is like, do you need these people, filler people like myself? Are we doing anything? I don't know. Like, did I push Abdi? Who pushed Meb? (laughs) Can I take credit for American distance running success? I don't know. But I know I probably wouldn't have stayed in the sport without the standard. But I read a great thread on Let's Run, and someone said, why not let just anyone enter? And I was like, wow, I hadn't thought about that. And they're like, have a mass race. And like, obviously, you need seating stuff, but like, just have it part of some great, I guess you could just almost then make it part of a bigger marathon. But I'm like, oh, what if they did that every once in a while? be like a revenue thing now most of these races just have a marathon maybe the next day or something but what if you just had an open race anyone wants to but then there's no pressure to hit a faster time and that sort of stuff so that probably actually isn't a good idea no there's some prestige attached to having a qualifying standard and also yeah well then what kept you motivated you were pushing for those qualifying standards if there's no qualifying standard you know there aren't going to be people getting celebrations when they hit the otq or that's any sort that sort of thing like the London Marathon, that's the selection race often for world championships teams for the for Great Britain. And does anyone get jazz? Like technically, if you start in the sub-elite race there, you're in the world championship marathon trials for Great Britain, and no one even thinks about that most of the time. So it's, the Olympic trials really are a vanity project for the dreamers, right? Like I told people I made the Olympic marathon trials, and people thought I was cool. And another interesting thing is if you go back far enough, actually, to 2016 – the trial standards then was originally 243 and 218. And it was only because of this, the Olympic standards got pushed back. And then there's a rule saying that the USATF standard can't be faster, that the woman's standard was as slow as it was. So I think more women will rise to the occasion. I'd like to see the stats and, you know, how many women have run between, yeah, 240 and 237 and that sort of stuff. But. The women's standard seems a little bit faster to me. It would be interesting. There's different committees, right? Women's long distance, men's long distance. Did they come up with these independently? 
And there's got to be some coordination between the groups because usually the trials are bit on together. It just doesn't make any sense. that They should either try to have equal numbers of men and women or have a, a, just a round standard. I'm for a big, big field. 220 and 240 would be fine. I, I, 218, 217, why change it one year from the next? Just do 220 and 240. By, by the way, you probably have more. Well, off, in terms of percentage off the world record, 220 is 17% off the world record. 240 is 19% off the world record. So you probably have more men, though, than women, according to the last time. But I mean, one thing you immediately saw was female posters and Let's Run saying, oh, wow, well, there goes me training for the trials. Some of these women were like, wow, 245 was there. I was really going to commit myself to training for the trials. And now they're like, look, it's, it's not attain- 237. It's not. I, I just don't me. get why they're trying to like limit it. Like make it, we need to have a standard. It's good. It's aspirational, but I'm even willing to charge people. If you have 500 men and 500 women make it and you charge them $200 to run the race, that's 200 grand. Add that to the prize purse. Yeah, I, I was actually I was talking to one pro coach over the weekend. They had the same exact suggestion, Robert. Everyone pays a hundred bucks entry fee, and you can beef up the prize money, and then the LOC gets made whole a little bit too. What I'm curious about is anyone going to want to bid on these things? This thing, because we have so far, I think the application deadline might be in March or something. I've heard nothing about any city being interested in hosting this yet. We've heard no, you know, there's been no announcement about this sort of thing. And Atlanta, they put on a great trial, but they lost over a million dollars of this. Rich Kanawha was basically, he's the, you know, the head of the Atlanta Track Club, and was saying, it's not a sustainable model. You can't host this. Like, they what put in such a great job hosting this meet, and yet they lost a ton of money doing it. And he would be hesitant to do it again because of the restrictions USATF places on sponsorship and that sort of thing. I'm I'm a little worried. Is anyone going to want to bid on this thing? I'm not worried about it. If Rich hadn't paid everybody's way, he wouldn't have lost all that money. <laughs> Just don't pay everybody's way, and you don't lose all the money. Yeah, Rich volunteered to pay the money, John. And has he really said he wouldn't host it again? Like it's a marketing spend for them. It got the Atlanta Truck Club established. Now I think they agreed to pay the money before the standard got reduced. Maybe. Yeah, I and I think they 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 offered to pay everyone's way or something and. Oh, before Super Shoes. That was it. Yeah, and they were playing like A and B standards, and I think you only have to pay the A qualifier's way. So they they went above and beyond, and then they kind of got screwed by the Super Shoes. But the other thing, US, like you're very limited in the revenue sources for this. You can't charge admission to the Olympic marathon trials. You have to work within, like USATF already has sponsors, and they get the money from the broadcast. So how are you going to make money for an event where you can't charge admission, and you don't control the TV rights. It's very difficult. Like you almost need to have a city come in and basically just say, okay, we want to capitalize on the hotel thing. And maybe, you know, maybe you will have that happen. But in terms of an organizing committee, like the Atlanta track club, it's kind of hard to make money off of this thing. Well, you're not supposed to be making money. It's supposed to be a marketing bill spend for the city or for the track club or et cetera. But the more I think about this, the more upsetting it's going to be to me. Why not have a big field aim for 500 men, 500 women, Pay the way for the top 10%. Instead, they have, they're going for 91 and 169. Like, why? Like, this is the crown jewel of the sport. If you, if you graduate post collegially, this becomes your goal. Make it 218 and 240 or 220 and 240. I really think it should be 220 and 240. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're going to raise the standard. If we put it at 237, more women will run 236. Who cares? They're still not going to make the Olympics. So why not have it 240 and let more people do it? 
And they don't need to pay everyone's way. I mean, that, like, this isn't a charity. You could have an A standard, something out there. An entry fee to raise some money for the race isn't the worst idea. And the one caveat is World Athletics needs to right now say this is a gold-level race. Top three are automatically in the Olympics. Yeah, I would love to see them do that. It's just common sense. Like, USA is going to be sending three men and three women to Paris in 2024 regardless. It should make sense that it's the top three from the trials. Now, just going back to 2020, it wouldn't have made a difference. Like, the top three in both the men's and women's race all had the standard and went. And furthermore, unless it's like on a hilly course like it was in Atlanta, I expect the top three finishers in each race will probably get it in 2024 anyway. So maybe it's a moot point, but it would be nice just to have the assurance from World Athletics like, oh, this makes sense to put a, you know the top three in the Olympic marathon trials. Yeah, this makes sense. Yeah, supposedly World Athletics you know, is really pushing its world rankings because they want people to run their events. But in reality, the sport wants people to run the best events. And a trials is so unique with all the other ranked athletes. It, sh- it is of that standard. The rankings need to reflect the reality because the greatest running event in the United States, that is great for the sport. It is great for running in the U.S. It grows the sport. The rankings need to reflect that. We, we World Athletics, if you come to watch the Olympic Marathon Trials, they want this event to continue. There's no way. It's such a good thing. A few more athletes going to chase some qualifier in Chicago doesn't enhance the sport more than the Olympic Marathon Trials are. I'm very confident saying that. Yeah, but I'm not convinced they will give it goal label status because they're going to try to reduce the numbers. They had too many people in the Olympic Marathon last time. They're trying to reduce the size of the Olympics. This is If we talk about this anymore, it's going to get me very upset. And John's like, oh, we don't have the money? Hey, John, do you realize how much Max Siegel makes? How much was it last month? How much was it last year? Uh, I think it was about it was over a million, one point three million. You think he's just going to give up this money for the good of the sport, Robert? You think no, that's, no, no. that's what's going to happen? By the way, he made one point three million last year, which we said was his lowest that he's ever made, or the most he's ever made. I forgot. In terms of just salary, not extra compensation, it was the most. So he made the most he's ever made in a pandemic year when they laid off a bunch of staffers. Despicable absolutely despicable. We didn't talk about this. This was a COVID year when they fired a lot of the staff, put them on furlough. Well, I guess they let the government pay for their salaries, but that's not right. And we're talking about a couple hundred thousand dollars. If this dude took a reasonable, let's, let's take it down to $500,000 for a nonprofit CEO. We have $800,000 to spend. We can have a thousand athletes and give them all $800 each. I mean, what a joke. By the way, has Max Siegel been suspended yet? The convention was last week when Vin Lanana was the subject of a criminal investigation. He was uh, suspended. Did we know? Is Max Siegel suspended, John? Do we know? I don't know anything about it. And I don't even think Vin Lanana was the subject of the investigation. He was just, you know, interviewed about the investigation, right? Also, you don't know that Max Siegel is the subject of the investigation either, right? So let's just be careful what we say. Right. Oh, I see what you're saying, but he but, but he still was suspended, right? Because he was tied to Trackdown USA. Fair point. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, Max Siegel, if USATF is being investigated, well, Max Siegel's responsible for USATF because he's the CEO. Yep. This USATF convention was held, and it was a big victory for the members. There was these governance 
amendments up that essentially would have given the board more power. And the U.S. OPC, the Olympic Committee, wanted this to, these to pass. A lot of people, including all of us, thought they were unnecessary, that the membership should retain power. They voted for these. Rich Perelman of the Sports Examiner has a, gr- a nice article on this. I'll link to it in the show notes. But it's, it, it, it's good. USATF, first and foremost, it's run by it, its members. They should be in charge. It's an organization for them and for like elite sport in the United States. But last time I looked, the members weren't causing the problem at USATF. It's been some of the decisions by the CEO and the board in my book. Do you guys know what USATF spent last year in legal fees? It's in the millions, I'm sure. Yeah, one nearly $1.5 million last year, $1.1. At one point, the like board suspended the entire youth committee and sued them in federal court. I mean... It shows lawyers are expensive. I don't want to go there, but people are getting pissed for Shelby Hewlett and ask Trent raise money for her defense. Maybe she needs to commit to say, look, the money will only go up to what I spend on legal stuff. But lawyers are very expensive. But that's a problem created by USATF in my book right there. So nice victory for, I think, a better USATF in my book that the board didn't get the ability to do whatever the hell it wants. All right, another news item to come out of the USATF annual meeting, this was reported by the agent Dan Lilo, was that the U.S. championships for next year, outdoor championships, which should not even had a venue announced and we're six months away, is going to be in Eugene, June 23rd to 26th. But certain events, including the 10,000 meters, because it's only three weeks away from the world championships, they're going to be holding the 10,000 meters in a separate trials, one-off trials race, similar to what they do in the UK with the night of the 10,000 meter PBs. And that's going to be at Mount Sac on May 20th. What do we think about this idea? I'm not sure what I think about this, John, to be honest. On the one hand, in the past, I proposed you could have a nationals, you could break it up. You could have a sprint nationals down in Texas, a distance nationals up in Eugene, maybe the 10,000 somewhere else. So the idea of having a, a, a 10,000 race in better weather, better conditions, so more people can hit the standard isn't the worst idea, but I'm worried, like, is this just the start of the 10,000 being abolished completely? Number one. And number two, I don't trust anything that USATF does, so this is too close. That's the, I don't, I don't believe that rationale. I, 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 you know, say you want better weather. What do you mean it's too close? You can't run two, two 10Ks in the span of three weeks? No, of course you can't. Well, they didn't officially say that, right, John, did they? Dan said that purportedly due to the short turnaround between USA and Worlds. I Look, I like this idea because one of the things is outside of an Olympic trials year, it's very difficult for athletes to double at the USA meet in the 5K and 10K. The World Championships, it's pretty simple to do it because you get more time between them. But USA's, it's a four-day meet. So at the most, you get two rest days between those events. And a lot of those guys, as we saw this year, Woody Kincaid, um, Carissa Schweizer, Grant Fisher, are capable of making both teams. So if you want your best possible team, you want to make it easier for your athletes to double. And this does accomplish that. Oh, maybe actually when he says the shorter turnaround time, maybe he's meeting at the trials. So that does make sense. I'm actually fine with it. The four-day turnaround is pretty short compared to like 10 days. At- no, no. He means between – he said that – Short turnaround between USA's and Worlds. Uh, well, but the short, your point, John, is a good one. So I'm fine with it. 
and you know, I've been at meets when the 10,000 comes on, I run down to the front row to watch it and the rest of the standings leave. I just don't want the 10th. I think the 10,000 is one of the better events in track and field at the championship level. There's a lot of drama. You have 30 minutes for the commentators to, to build the drama and, and talk about it. And then it explodes. And I don't want this. I don't want this event to go away by the wayside. Well, I think Robert though, sometimes at those trials events, it does get forgotten because I've been at meets at USA's when it's in Sacramento and Everyone comes for the sprints. They leave for the 10K because it's late at night because it's hot in Sacramento. And then you end up having a 10K that's on in one in the morning on the East Coast and no one's paying attention to it on a Thursday night. I think if you put this, okay, May 20th, I go see what, let me see what day of the week that is. All right, that's a Friday night. So don't have it at like, I know perfect conditions. Everyone wants, oh, let's have it at 9 p.m. where it's going to be absolute best weather. Yeah, but then they're starting it on midnight on the East Coast and you're going to be turning out half your audience let's get this thing at maybe 6 or 7 p.m it's still going to be fine for running a championship meet if it's in southern california it's never going to get in crazy hot but build this thing up make it like the night of 10,000 meter pbs have a beer tent like hype this up this is a celebration of these two you know it's a world championship trials for a world championships in eugene but like you've got to make this an event you can't just say oh this is all about the athletes and getting them in perfect conditions no this is about getting people to care about this event and the 10,000 meters. So try to do what they did with the uh, night of 10,000 meter PBs. Watch that and take, take tips. When I first heard this news, John, I was conflicted. The more we talk about it, I'm still even a little bit conflicted. I mean, the 10 K is my baby. This is my event. It should be part of the main nationals. I like that. I don't buy. There's not enough time. Three weeks is plenty of time to bounce back for another 10 K. But the more you guys talk about doubling the 10 and the 5, there's not a lot of time there. I think I'm fine with it. The standard is so hard, but maybe you can get into world rankings. Going to Mount Sac, it's going to be better weather. It could be better weather. You could have really bad weather in Eugene. So give people a chance to hit the standard in a championship race. I, I like it. But now you want it at 6 p.m. so it can be streamed better on the whatchamacallit. If you're trying to hit the standard, John, they're going to run the race at 8 or 9 p.m. at night. There's no question around it. And I think that's what probably more athletes would want. Is there, when, you, when you talk about athletes and coaches, they're going to want time trial conditions, weather. They don't really care about the fans, and maybe that's a problem. But is the 10K stream ever going to be what captivates fans? No, but like how – okay. How often are our national championships like running good conditions to get the standard anyway, though? At USA's, at the Olympic trials, there's always a group of people saying, oh, we're going to go out and we're going to try and get the standard. And it very rarely happens. The only time I can really remember it happening was in 2012. And that was when, you know, they had Galen Rupp helping set the pace for Dathan Ritzenhine to get it at the Olympic trials. So so are they going to be able to hit the trials? Like, do we push it back by three hours? So these people who don't, don't have, like most of the great, most of the best athletes are already going to have the standard going in. Do we push it back three hours so some people who don't have the standards have a little bit better chance at getting it? Well, this begs the question. Before people might have gone to Stanford, the first Stanford meet, which is usually the first week of May, and try to hit the standard. Now are they going to put all their eggs in this basket? Because they think this is the standard meet. So it could eliminate a chance to hit the standard. I don't know. That's actually I'm, I'm, I'm willing to try it. You know, But I think... This might be people might just throw, go all in for this. I think that's probably what it, I don't know. I guess it depends on how your training is going, that sort of stuff. 
when I was running 10Ks, I'd run them about once a month. Yeah, I think that's a good point, actually, Weldon, because it's earlier in the season. If you don't already have the standard, people might just say, yeah, screw trying to run Peyton Jordan. We'll just try to get the standard at the trials. It's Mount Sac. It'll be con- good conditions. Either way, I think it's the, and the one people, the one group of people who are getting screwed over here are the collegians because normally you'd be able to run USAs after NCAAs. In this case, the trials would fall the week after the conference meet, the week before regionals, and then you'd still have NCAAs. It's pretty rare for a collegian to make the 10K team, but we did see Connor Mance get fifth in the Olympic trials this year. So that's the one group that isn't going to be benefiting. And John, you talked about the 10K not being popular. I mean, when I ran it, it we were like rock stars. It, it was crazy. People barely knew who, like Marion Jones and was Justin Gatlin running then still? I don't even know. Who the, Maurice Green, Maurice Green. By the way, I got a text from a buddy who went to the running lane. He said the Newberry Park kids were like rock stars. They were doing selfies with fans, and he said they were really cool to his son. Anyways, I'm waking up the dark sky weather for Walnut, California, May 20th. <laughs> Wait, you please don't. T- what is that prediction? They have a forecast for May 20th, 2022? Yeah, I look back like at last year. Maybe it was the year before. Okay. I looked at 2020. Look, let me look at 2021 here. Oh. Well, COVID is, you know, COVID's impacted the weather, I'm sure, the last two years. So you got to go back before COVID. <laughs> at 6 p.m., the temperature was 65 degrees. 4 p.m. at 69, 6 p.m. 65, 8 p.m. 61. I mean, how much sun covers are at 6? I guess is probably almost as big of a question. Oh, yeah. Well, it would still be sunny at 6 p.m. But, oh, and then I forgot, Southern California, starting an event at 6 p.m., pretty much everyone's going to be stuck in traffic, right? It's going to be impossible to get there on time. Maybe that, that actually, I can see that now. If they do have the trials race at 6 p.m., someone will miss the start due to getting stuff in, stuck in traffic. It will happen. And I don't want to hear how we need to run it in hot weather because it might be hot in Eugene. No, just let the fastest people go. But I, yeah, I, I, the more John's explained it to me, I'm fine with it. I'm excited about it. I'm not, I, I don't know if I believe with John's theory that if something isn't streamed live on the internet so that everybody can watch it, it doesn't exist. Make it a fun event to go to, make people actually go there. Well, I heard NBC and ESPN, you know, ABC were in bidding war for this. It's going to be like probably network because, you know, college football isn't going on the, the Friday night game, Saturday night games that they have. So. Probably live on ABC. That was a joke, people. All right, let's turn to the U.S. Half Marathon Championships down in South Carolina. Let's give a shout-out to the town, John. I always, I know it was near the Georgia border. Hottieville. Got to give a shout-out to the sponsor, Robert, too. Yeah, the, shout, the sponsor is Mortgage Network. And my understanding is this is another eccentric billionaire type, sort of like what we have in Spain with the Valencia Marathon. I don't know who, I tried to look up who's in charge of this, who decides this, because this race didn't exist until last year, and then it springs up, and suddenly it's hosting the national championship a year later. So kudos to the organizers, kudos to Mortgage Network. I'd, I'd like to know who's in charge, who's the person bankrolling this. Are they a fan of the sport? Who, who is it specifically? Well, you heard this, John? I was talking to Ben Rosario at the BU meet over the weekend, and I'm like, how did this meet, which is in its second year of existence, end up hosting a national championship? And they said, "There's a 
whoever's the head of the, I think it's the head of Mortgage Network, wanted to stage this race. They're a fan of the sport, and that's how it got put on. I I need to do a little bit more digging to figure out exactly what's going on, but I'd I'd be interested to hear how it came together. Maybe they're a podcast listener. I, I did it all wrong, John. I think in life, I won the Econ Award at Yale. I now live in Fairfield County, Connecticut, where everyone's in finance and. Uh, I, I do what I love. I'm in running, but if I had made a billion, I could support all the running. I guess then I'd have no credibility and let's run wouldn't have started. But Hey, if anybody wants to help me figure out what I'm going to go all in uh, finance econ, if I make a billion, 20% will go back straight to running right away. Somebody get on this. I'm ready. Anyways, at the U S half, let's talk about what happened in the race. Connor Mance lived up to the hype. In my opinion, some people say no, because he didn't get the American record. Well, he announced before the race that he was not going for the American record. He focused on the win, and he outkicked Sam Chalanga one in 60-55. Also, I was very pleased to see he was wearing Nike gear. I was going to be I was going to be done with Connor Mance. Once he appeared on the podcast and I listened to it, I loved the way he talked about running. I'm like, this guy's going to be a star. Someone needs to sign him. But when he turned down our $1,000 offer to wear the Let's Run.com t-shirt in this race, $10,000 if he broke the American record, I'm like, this guy had better have a damn sponsor. If he doesn't have a damn sponsor and he just turned us down because he doesn't want to wear the Let's Run colors, he's dead to me. But no, I've hyped him up as, a, as the next great American marathoner, and he shows that. I knew that he could easily break 61 minutes. He runs 60-55 for the win. What did you guys think of that? Yeah, I thought it was an impressive performance. I expected him to win. I don't think people should be like, oh, he didn't get the American record again. He said beforehand he wasn't going for it. That it's, a, it's what I expected him to do. It's a very good start to his pro career. I think greater things lie ahead. But it was pretty warm conditions. It was very humid. I think it was about 100% humidity, actually. Conditions are in the 60s. So, yeah, 60-55, that, that's absolutely fine. Very solid run by Connor. I still would have loved to see him go for the record. I think being naive and young is a great thing and probably wouldn't have happened. But it wasn't a guaranteed win this race, so let's not get away from that. And the other thing, Sam Chalinga keeps running really well. I swear the last major thing I remember about Sam Chalinga was he was retired and like wanted me to read his book. Sam actually, I don't know if I ever got the book or I was going to read it. But he's only, what, four seconds back, loses a kick. And let's run visitor Zach Bruins sent an email. He pointed out Sam Chalinga finished second in the USATF road running circuit five of the last seven years. Because that's pretty impressive, especially considering he retired during that time period. (laughs) And yeah, I agree. And... Every email doesn't receive something on the podcast, but I'm in the holiday spirit. Zach, you get a free Let's Run or 159.40 t-shirt. Everyone else, if you want to buy it, go to shop.letsrun.com for the softest t-shirts in the business. Sometimes we give away a free pair of on shoes for emails or listener audio. But guys, Connor Mance called in to the letsrun.com voicemail. His audio is pretty funny. We'll be playing that at the end. But I think first we got to talk the performance of 
this race was not Connor Mance. It was not Sam Chuinga. It was Miss Cara D'Amato. She crushed the field, running 67.55, almost two minutes up on Natasha Rogers in second. I mean, this is just great running. We, we shouldn't be surprised by Kira. She's at this level now. She was what? At Chicago this year. But great, great run. She's 37 years old, goes 68 for the first time, sub 68. Yeah, she's tied for number four now in U.S. history with Jordan Assay on a record-eligible course. And what I think is a really cool story about this is this is Kira has now clinched a spot on the 2022 World Championship team in the half marathon. And I think that's awesome because I a few months ago, you know, USATF came out with the standards or how they were going to pick the World Championship team in the marathon next year. And they did this after Kira had already run the Chicago Marathon and finished fourth. And she ended up being on the outside looking in. She was the first person off the team because it looks like Molly Seidel, Sarah Hall, and Emma Bates are all going to take their spots. And I texted her after that. I said, would you have taken the spot if you got it? And she said, I've been, hell yes. I've been working my butt off to make a U.S. team. You better believe I would accept it. I was like, yeah, sorry it didn't work out. You know, it's kind of unfortunate that USATF didn't give more clarity about the procedure. And, you know, we weren't sure at that time if Molly Seidel had taken her spot. And she said, I'm sure Molly will accept and I hope she does. She's an incredible marathoner. I'll be on the outside looking in. I'll try to, try to make the half team and the 5K and 10K team. I'll find a way to compete at Worlds. I just love that attitude. And she's on the World Championship team now for the half marathon, which is next year in China in the fall. She has a shot in the 5K or 10K on the track. I just think it's a cool story. This is a woman who's out of the sport for almost a decade. She comes back and she's running some of the fastest times we've ever seen by an American. Speaking of fastest times ever run by an American... After seeing D'Amato's time, I started to wonder how fast would Wayne Kaladi have run in this race? Because remember, just a few weeks ago at Manchester, Wayne Kaladi beat Miss Cara D'Amato by 11.4 seconds per mile. So I projected that over a marathon, and I got 229. If you subtract 229 from 67.55, you get 65.26. Some, or one person, I don't like the modern world, you know, Something happens and the people like people react negatively and they'll find one person, you know, that says something on Twitter. But someone on the message board did not like me using this comparison saying it wasn't good. But I don't know, maybe D'Amato ran better in this race. But I do think, am I saying by making that comparison that I think Kaladi would run 65 26? No. But do I think she would break the American record in the half marathon? Yes. And apparently, her agent, am I allowed to say this, John? He must read or listen to the podcast because he heard me saying that, talking about how she should make, run this race, should have run this half marathon, and then make her marathon debut in Boston. And she has texted Mr. Jonathan Galt. This is Stephen Haas, her agent. It's not she, he. Yeah, excuse me. Stephen Haas must have heard me on the podcast demanding that Miss Kaladi run this race and then make her marathon debut. And I think I've proven right by seeing how fast Amato ran that she should have run this race. But he said, well... We'll have her make her marathon debut when she gets her mileage up over 60 miles per week, which even makes me more excited. If she's running this fast on barely any training, it shows that this woman is an all-time talent. 
And I expect her to be the U.S. half marathon record holder soon, as well as the U.S. marathon record holder. Okay, wow. All right, that's that's a lot of expectations to heap on young Wayne. Just to clarify here, he didn't say when she gets her mileage above 60, she'll make a de- marathon debut. He said when she gets over 70 miles a week, we'll look at it. I don't think they're in any rush. She seems to be progressing very nicely at the moment. I trust they'll make the right decisions. It would be interesting to see her run the marathon. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but I do expect her to start moving up to a half. Maybe she goes to Houston or something. I I think that would be pretty exciting, actually. That's my plan. Wayne Claudi, Houston Half Marathon, January 2020, to go after Molly Huddle's American record. I think that should be the next goal. But she may be injured because she was supposed to run the cross championships that the sound running people put on. By the way, cool event. Thanks for guys for putting on a professional running cross-country event in America. But she was a late scratch. Stephen Haas coaches her, right, John? Yes. And Scott Rasco, does he still coach Karen D'Amato? Yep. If people don't know, that's Alan Webb's high school coach. Robert, which is the athlete or the coach? I'm sure when Alan Webb was running, Robert says, Scott Rasco, a good coach? And Robert would be like, oh, that's a once-a-generation talent. Look at the other, look at the freshman on his team. Okay, one more notable road race result from over the weekend, the California International Marathon. Sarah Vaughn made her debut and won the race in a course record of 226.53. I was not expecting this. I mean, Sarah, Sarah Vaughn, pretty solid middle distance runner, made a world's team for the U.S. in 2017 in the 1500. You know, she's run the steeple at USA's before. I didn't expect going. She, she hasn't even really run the 5K or 10K seriously. So coming up to the marathon, I wasn't expecting anything you know, anything crazy from this to run two twenty six, of course, record in your debut. Look, okay. Super shoes, whatever downhill course, whatever. That's still a really impressive run for a 35 year old. Who's best known to this point as a miler. And who in fact ran four Oh five, almost ran a personal best in the 1500, just five, less than five months ago in Azusa. And now she's running two twenty six in the marathon. I was very impressed by this performance. John, you got to say Sarah Vaughn, mother of four. People don't even know who you're talking about. Come on. Yeah, great run. I mean, I didn't even know she was thinking about the marathon. And I see Robert here wants to know if Sarah Vaughn is the next Sarah Hall. I'll go with no. (laughs) Because Sarah Hall is close to 220, and this was on a downhill course. But Sarah Hall struggled a lot more when she started the marathon and then really came down. So can she get below 225 or something? Yes. Well, I, I, I actually asked that question. And I, yeah, I don't think it's say, fair to say, oh, you know, can't she be the next Sarah Hall? Because Sarah Hall is the second fastest American marathon in history. You said she's gotten close to 220. Well, then Sarah Hall has run 220, 32 last year at the Marathon Project. So yeah, is she going to get that? No, but... It's interesting because I kind of viewed them similarly. Sarah Hall was kind of a jack of all trades on the track. Sarah Vaughn was a bit better than that. Again, she did make a world's team, but was never like a, a dominant force in U.S. running. So when they moved up to the marathon, I didn't expect like a ton from, from either of them. And it turns out it was definitely Sarah Hall's best event. Maybe it might be Sarah Vaughn's best event as well. And I couldn't help but notice the similarities. They both have the same name. They've both got four kids. They're both married to a college teammate who was also a professional runner, Ryan Hall 
and Brent Vaughn. So I just thought it was kind of interesting similarities in this progression. But, you know, I'll, I'll be excited to see where Sarah Vaughn comes from here. And they both won CAM as well. Sarah Hall won it back in 2017 in 228.10. That's an interesting story. I'm just not sure, John. You said Sarah Vaughn was better than Sarah Hall on the track. I guess she did make a world's team, but there's their PRs are pretty damn similar. Nine thirty eight, nine thirty nine in the steeple. Vaughn did run four oh four versus four oh eight in the fifteen hundred. Vaughn ran four oh four, Hull ran four oh eight. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, John said emphatically that Vaughn won't run that time. You know, we don't know. I think it's unlikely that she comes down that much in the marathon. Yeah, but I mean, people would have said the same thing about Sarah Hole when she won CIM, right? So she ran CIM in 2017, and her personal best at the time was 227.12. She had run that earlier in the fall in Frankfurt. She was 34 years old at the time. You would have been like, okay, you know, that, that's fine, but you know, she's probably not going to get that much faster. And since then, she's taken nearly seven minutes off her PR. Sarah Vaughan is one year older than Sarah Hall was when she won CIM. Sarah Vaughan's 35. But at the same time, you know, am I going to say she's going to take six minutes off her PR and run 220? No, but we wouldn't have said that about Sarah Hall in 2017 either. And in the men's race at CIM, I assume that the best downhill runner in the world, C.J. Albertson, the man that led most of the Boston Marathon this year, did he crush this downhill race and win it in like 207, John? That did not happen. The winner was Brendan Gregg, Stanford alum, who's a NorCal native. So it was nice to see him get the victory. CJ Albertson was only eighth place in 214.45. Hopefully nobody heard the 207 talk on last week's podcast. Okay, guys and gals, I think we've been talking for a long time on this podcast. Can't wait for Friday. We'll break down Foot Locker, maybe European cross country. I shouldn't call it Foot Locker, excuse me, East Bay. But right now, Weldon is going to play the voicemail of the week from the fake Connor Mance. I will say, folks, I'm a little bit surprised you and Jonathan have no problem playing this following clip because if we got a voicemail with a priest talking about having sex, would you play it? I mean, Robert, I think people need the context of the call before they, you just pose this strange hypothetical question to them. Just listen to the voicemail, and we'll talk about that on Friday. I got no problem playing this voicemail. I thought it was funny. Gets very gets clever as it goes on. Brings in some let's run insider jokes. It's kind of jokes about some what standards of the Mormon religion but I think it's respectful. And you you hear John and all of us listening to it. Actually, this is the first time we listen to it. It's like, if you hear any chuckling, like we had never played it before. So. Well, that's just not true. You played it for us before the show. No, I'm going to play that audio. I'm not replaying the audio. I, I recorded that audio. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm not replaying it now. Like, that's it. No. Yeah. There, the, Clip, I actually, when we started recording, I played you. The first thing I did was turn on the recorder, said, Hey, we got a fake Connor Mance. Let's hear it. I mean, I listened to the first five seconds and said, Could tell it was fake Connor Mance. And then I played it for you guys. So, all right, everyone. 
Thanks for listening. Spread the word. That's what you got to do. If you know a running friend, you say, hey, I heard this great podcast, let's run.com. Boom, five stars on iTunes. Oh, boom. I just ordered the runnerbox.com monthly subscription. That's what I want for Christmas. Oh, boom. Yeah. The drink element free offer. It's great. Check it out, everyone. Links in the show notes. Thanks again. Connor Mance. Hey, Rojo, Ouija, and Jonathan Gall. This is Connor Mance. Uh, just finished winning the uh, USATF half in the Hardyville, South Carolina. Wrapped up my cool down. Do all that stuff that us pro runners now do. That I've been a pro for a couple of days now. And, uh, Enjoy wearing my Nike kit today. It didn't make me shine and shave my mustache off, but, uh, you know, still looking pretty good out there in my super shoes and, and hauling around that course. Uh, a little disappointed that, uh, you know, Rojo or, or Ouija or Jonathan, you know, you decided to go to the Boston meet instead of come down here and cover this half. I was thinking about pushing for the record on the last loop, but uh, just kind of lost motivation because I didn't see uh, the LRC team out there. So I really think you guys should come out and watch me race every time I race. Um, I mean, I am the, uh, the Tom Brady of the running professional community. And, uh, you know, afterwards, since I'm no longer at BYU, I thought I'd go out and grab a pint with you guys and share my first beer or maybe get a craft beer sponsor. So, again, guys, just a little disappointed. Uh, I did talk to Ray about that, uh, passing along your offer to me. I, I think I would have much rather worn the LRC T-shirt out there on that course today. Really wasn't pushing it anyway, so the t-shirt wouldn't have, wouldn't have mattered, especially with the super shoes on. So, again, thanks for having me on your podcast. But, again, guys, I mean, where were you today? You know, I saw some LRC super fan out there. But uh, other than that, i just uh, disappointed greatly that I didn't see you all out there. All right. See you on the next time. So, I'll give you guys one more chance. And, uh, and again, I'll talk to Ray about uh, picking up on that uh, sponsorship offer.